everybody. Welcome to Cinemus, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm County Fudge Champion Mike Emmel, and I'm very excited to welcome today's guest host. You all know him as one of the hosts of the fantastic Casual Cinecast. He's also the host of our episode on Tokyo Story and An Autumn Afternoon. And if I may say, he also does a very killer rendition of Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. It's Chris Reeves. Chris, welcome back to the show, man. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I, if you pay me five bucks, I'll, I'll do the song for you. I'm a venue. I'm Venmoing you right now. Let's get it on air. Awesome. All right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Welcome back. Been a while since we talked to Ozu movies. How's things been going for you? Well, they've been going great. Uh, yeah, just counting the time before I could be back on the podcast. Oh, it's very kind of you. Um, <laughs> you. I hope that the Casual Cinecast has been filling that void. I think it's a pretty good show. I'm. I'm a big fan myself. Would you mind explaining to any of our listeners who don't know already what you and Justin and Mike are doing over there on the Casual Cinecast? Yeah. Uh, first off, thank you very much for saying uh, w- those kind words about the show. But um, what we do on the Casual Cinecast is, well, we cover the Criterion Collection, and usually we do that every other week, and then we cover new movies uh, in the off weeks. Uh, however, um, I don't know if you guys have heard, there's been this <laughs> crazy <laughs> pandemic thing going on. Um, so we kind of veered off and we, we actually did a really fun thing that, that gave me a lot of stress, but turned out to be a lot of fun. And that was our, our top 10 movies of all time. And we each devoted an episode to that. And it actually turned out to be a lot of fun, um, picking movies like, uh, and going over just, you know, your favorite movies and getting to find out more about each other in that way. But yeah, it was a lot of fun to do that, and we've reverted back to our doing our normal every other episode, and things may change again because uh, the world is crazy right now. <laughs> but yeah, those were really really great shows. Actually, I, I'm a sucker for top ten lists and getting to know like your guys' taste, and it also made me really happy because a lot of your guys' favorite movies are movies either you've done on our show personally or that we've done. Um, your your number one is Vertigo, right? Correct. So we we did a show on Vertigo, regretfully without you, but Tokyo Story, which you were, that was the last time you were here. That was like third for your list? Yeah, I believe so. And what was two? Uh, two. <laughs> Just to round out that top three, you know. Yeah, two was Memento. We have done an episode on Memento. All have three you? of those. Yeah, all three of them are cinemas. They're movies everyone must see. So you have impeccable taste, man. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> those are great shows. Sorry to sorry to give your list away. I'll, I'll spare everybody Justin and Mike's, but I thought they were great. I know you guys personally, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of top 10 lists, and you guys made that a ton of fun. Awesome. What, yeah. um, what, are you, what are you guys up to lately now that you're talking Criterion movies? Uh, yeah, so we're actually about to record... Um, well, as you listen to this, it'll already be out, but an episode on Do the Right Thing um, uh, that's coming yes. up very soon, um, or actually it's it's out, like I said, because of the delay in the recordings. Uh, but yeah, I'm very excited to talk about that, um, and it should be a lot of fun. I, I hope it is. That's a movie that can be fun to talk about and also infuriatingly hard to talk about, but it's a great, it's a freaking great movie, man. I'm kind of jealous you guys get to tackle it. Yeah, for sure. So hopefully everybody who's who's a fan of our show knows you guys at the Casual Cinecast. We've had you on, we've had Justin on, we've had Mike on. I think your show, your guys' show is great. But for anybody who doesn't know where to find you guys, where can they get at it if they want to pop in an episode of Casual Cinecast after this? Basically, as far as I know, <laughs> any um you know podcast distribution device you know or app, you can just type in Casual Cinecast and you can find it. Um, we also have you know Facebook and Twitter. 
uh, all under Casual Cinecast. Um, and we also have an Instagram, but we don't necessarily update that as often as we should, but it's there. So listeners take that as a challenge. If there's some place you cannot find the Casual Cinecast at, uh, let us know. Absolutely. We'll let Justin, Chris, and Mike know. Um, and that'll be like a fun little scavenger hunt. Um, cool, man. Well, good luck talking Do the Right Thing. I love that movie. I'm scared to talk about it, so better you guys than me. Um, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that episode. And it's, it's just really good to have you back. I thoroughly enjoyed our episode on Tokyo Story and An Autumn Afternoon. It was great talking Ozu. And you picked a great movie for your triumphant return. So before we get diving into it, I want to welcome you back. And I just want to welcome back everybody who's listening. Everybody, we're really glad to have you because the holy mission that our show is on is to decide which movies truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema. And Chris and I just can't do that on our own. So to determine if tonight's film is going to earn a place on that list, we're going to leave it up to all of you listening to cast your votes on the polls we're going to put on various social media pages. So if you're not already doing so, make sure that you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all of which you can find just by searching for Cinemusts, and you can cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. So while you all make sure you're following us on whichever of those platforms you prefer, Chris, we're going to be asking listeners to vote tonight's film into one of three categories. So if I could interrupt your knuckle tattooing for a second, would you mind explaining what the three categories are? Uh, yeah, let me just finish up this tea. Yeah, great. It hurts a lot, but uh, it's totally worth it. Yeah, so uh, the <laughs> the categories are Cinemust, Cinebust, and Cinetrust. Cinemust is a movie that everybody must see. Uh, the, you know, it's just one of the greatest movies ever, and you have to see it before you die. Cinetrust is a movie where you have to kind of know the person before you recommend it to them. You have to know their tastes because it's not for everybody, but it's still a good movie. And then Cinebust is not a good movie, and nobody should watch it. And those are the categories, and it works out really well. Plus, this is the one reason I want to be on the show is just to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, so oh, you! I'm signing you off. You like now. you like the pitch? That's great because yeah. this is usually death for everybody who guests us. <laughs> you you handle it like a pro, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So tonight's movie is going to fit into one of those three categories by the end of the week. Listeners are going to decide are going to decide which one it truly belongs in. But we gotta we gotta intro it. So Chris, I said I want you back. Uh, you got carp, not carpe diem. <laughs> you got carpe diem. You got carte blanche for whatever movie you want to pick. Uh, and you you answered back with what movie? Night of the Hunter, or the Night of the Hunter, if you will. Yes, thank you, <laughs> yeah. thank you. We don't want to mix those up. What made you pick this one? Uh, it was kind of a whim. Uh, I'd heard about this film before. I had not seen it. So that was kind of what I was going for is a movie that I hadn't seen and I wanted to see it. And this gave me an excuse to watch it. Yeah. And then that's basically why I picked it. <laughs> okay, great. Not only gives you an excuse to watch it, but to categorize it, to analyze it to death. This is going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. so let's, excited. let's dive into it. I'm really excited for this one. I got giddy with glee as soon as you said this was the one you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into it. To anybody who's new to the show, Chris and I are going to take a couple of minutes. We're going to be totally spoiler-free. We're going to try to sell you on the Night of the Hunter. We're going to tell you what it's about. We're going to decide for ourselves if it's a cinemust, a cinetrust, or cinebust. And then Chris and I are going to give three reasons apiece for why we voted into the category that we do. So if you haven't seen the movie, hang around for a couple of minutes. We're going to give you some points to help you see if maybe it's something you want to check out. And we'll issue a spoiler warning before we get diving deep into the conversation. So, Chris, uh, before we go with votes, I want to know, what is The Night of the Hunter about? The Night of the Hunter is about a religious con man who marries a widow in order to discover from her children where a large sum of money is hidden. Sweet and to the point. I love it. 
Um, there's a question I want to ask you, but I think it would be best suited after we know how you felt about the movie after watching it for the first time. So Cinemust, Cinetrust, Cinebust, where does this one fall for you? I would rate this uh, Cinemust. Um, I hadn't seen it before, and <laughs> I, I think that this movie, you should see it even if you don't like the movie simply because of the effect that it's had on pop culture, <laughs> you know, like uh, it okay. is like the grandpa of all sorts of other things that stem from it down further and further. And so like, you can kind of see where a bunch of things originated, I think. Um, so that's okay. kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. So maybe, maybe this isn't the tone you're going for, but am I kind of sensing this is a begrudging cinema must that it's not like you're over the moon about it, but you really get its importance. Uh, no, I really love this movie. Cause I, because I've been there, man. Yeah. No judgment. No, I, I like this movie. I think recommending it to other people is always where I have difficulty. You know, like uh, like between the cinemas and the cinetrust. Like, is this a movie that I trust everybody to watch and like? Or is this a movie that everybody will watch and like? Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Well, and remember, the criterion is not that they like it. It is strictly, do you recommend it to everybody or to some people? You know, there's there's plenty of movies I've seen and musted that I'm like, you would freaking hate this, but you got to watch it at least <laughs> once. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So yeah, so so it's a, it's a cinema must. It's, it's vastly popular. What are your three specific reasons why you put it there? Yeah, so uh, the first one, and I kind of already touched on this, but the, there's this influence that has on pop culture. You know, there's... Uh, a Simpsons episode that references this movie. Um, yeah, one Cape, of the best. Yeah, and, and it references Cape Fear mainly. And Cape Fear, I think, is uh, stems from this movie as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. And so there's just like all this stuff in pop culture that uh, stems from it. And I, I think that makes it, you know, uh, a cinema for sure. Uh, one of the other things that I, I really love about this movie, uh, <laughs> that it's, the, there's imagery in this that it, that, since I've watched it, I watched it like twice. I watched it like when we first talked about it a couple weeks ago, and I watched it more recently as well. And in that time, there's like certain images that I couldn't forget, you know, like that I, that kept popping back in my head and uh, like songs that also went with it. The Leaning song, for instance, um, yeah. that just kind of haunts you and sticks with you. That's surprisingly so at that too. And then my third reason um, is they do so much with so little like and i'm sure we'll get into this but there's you know the german expressionism that they they kind of take and use yeah. but there's like the sets are so minimal but yet there's so much going on on the screen you know with shadows and um with just imagery that's happening and sometimes the set's just like a wall and four torches you know and it's it looks amazing and it's it's really great and it, they do so much with so very little and it's 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 really remarkable how much they get done you know like in that agreed uh, one last question i want to ask for i lay my vote down so one of your points is like the vast influence this movie has on pop culture and this was your first time watching the movie you said this was kind of a whim something you're trying to catch up on scratch off your bucket list or whatever in your mind, what is the legacy of this movie? Like, how how big is its grasp on pop culture? Is it is it kind of like a, a niche film lover thing, or do you think it's more widespread than that? So the whole time I watched this movie, I couldn't stop thinking about Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure we can get into the reasons later on. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure of the timelines, uh, but 
I feel like Stephen King saw this as a child and just became obsessed with it and is still obsessed with it to this day because I feel like Stephen King deals with these issues and the themes in this movie constantly. <laughs> you know, man, I got that's a crackpot theory because it doesn't take place in Maine, so there's no way Stephen King can <laughs> idolize this movie. You're out of your mind. That, uh, yeah, I, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well that's good okay i i'm just very curious because i agree i think the night of the hunter is this really big movie uh, especially among film lovers but i've never i've always been late to the party so it's kind of nice to talk to somebody who hadn't seen it before to to pick at like where was this movie in the ether for you before you watched it yeah so thank you for sharing your view oh no worries um any other anything else spoiler free you want to share on your points uh, no, I'm just excited to hear what this vote is for you. Oh, lower your expectations. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm a little more riding high on the movie. It's a cinema must for me as well. I recommend the movie to everybody. I freaking love it. It is hard for me to deny its place as a classic. Though I am gonna I'm gonna pick it apart a little as we get into spoilers. But for me, three reasons why the movie's a must see movie for everybody, and and one of them is I think it is one of cinema's best fairy tales slash morality plays. Mm-hmm. And we've t- we've talked about a lot of those on on the podcast. We've done things like The Princess Bride and Pan's Labyrinth and Edward Scissorhands, among other things. And watching this movie, I was, I don't know why I didn't notice. I think it's like my fourth time seeing it. All of a sudden, I was like, "This is a fairy tale." How did I not really notice this before? And as I was watching it, I was like, "This stands up among like all those great movies we've talked about." I think it plays fair by the formula. It hits all the right boxes. I think it's freaking great. I can't talk much more about the point without spoilers. But that's a major selling point for me. Mm-hmm. Second selling point, to speak to the movie's kind of legacy as, as being somewhat simplistic and yet deep, I think the movie presents a very sincere religious allegory that also manages to really masterfully critique religious hypocrisy. And I bring this point up not because I have like an axe to grind one way or another, religiously speaking, but I think it's so impressive to me how the movie is so adept at pointing out the problems inherent in like a hyper-religious community and the problems that can present while also presenting an ideal of like what that should be and why faith is an important thing for people and that ties into its setting as a depression era movie and things like that but I I'm very impressed with how the movie kind of manages to do both things and my third reason it's it's so obvious but I can't deny it it's Robert Mitchum and it's Lillian Gish so use Robert Mitchum is the Religious con man, you mentioned in the plot summary, he is one of movie's absolute greatest villains as the uh, love-hate tattooed Reverend Harry Powell. But I couldn't give this point just to him. Lillian Gish as his opposite, as the representative of love and good. I think even though she's not in the movie as much as he is, she is a powerhouse performance. And watching those two play off together, representing different sides in this allegory I'm talking about in this fairy tale, like they are on point and it is a supreme pleasure to watch them agreed so those are those are my three reasons i'm pretty over the moon about the movie um but i i do want to kind of analyze it as um as a move as a hidden treasure because we know this movie was not very well received in its time very famously it's the only movie that legendary actor charles lawton ever directed and so i think a large part of the movie's legacy always revolves around like what might have been if this movie had done better and Charles Lawton had gotten to make more movies. It, you know, t- to me, this movie is kind of like, well, what if Citizen Kane was the only movie Orson Welles ever made? And in some ways, Citizen Kane almost was the only movie Orson Welles <laughs> ever made. But it, it, it kind of has like that air about it. You know, it's this one 
representative gem. But I, I don't think that it just gets by on that. I think it's sincerely just a great movie on its own. So that's that's all I got to say about it. Spoiler free. Are there any other things you'd like to say about it to let people who haven't seen it know before we get into spoilers? Uh, no, I, I just want to agree with uh, your, especially your point about Robert Mitchum and Lillian Gish. And you're right, Lillian Gish isn't in it very much. But as soon as you see her, you know that she can go toe to toe with Robert Mitchum. And you're, you're right. Yeah. She is a force. Yeah, it's so good. Um, we'll we'll save this for spoilers when we get moving in. I've got nothing else to say spoiler free. So if you're good, I think we should just dive in and start backing these points up. What do you say? Let's do it. Okay, so everybody who has not seen The Night of the Hunter, we recommend it. We think it's a movie everybody should see. So if you haven't watched it, give the episode a pause, go check it out, and come back uh, to see if you agree with our points. But we are laying it down. This is spoilers for The Night of the Hunter. Ah, a little lad just staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil? H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand, left hand hates a fighting. And it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won. And old left hand hate is down for the count. I never heard it better told. Okay, so Chris, in general impressions, we were talking a lot about the movie's influence on pop culture. It's it's legendary among film fans. And that's so interesting to me that, you know, this old movie from 1955 has such a presence in pop culture. And that's one of your reasons you recommend it to everybody. So let's let's talk about that first. We've, we've teased at this a little, but where do you see this movie's influence specifically in pop culture that is still relevant to today? Like I said, uh, with Stephen King, for instance, uh, I think Guillermo del Toro, like anything that has like... Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of um, fantastic, like you were talking about in one of your points, the the fairy tale morality play aspect to this. I, I think Guillermo del Toro is very influenced by this. Like the in this film, like the over the top kind of sequences uh, and images, like they're not realistic at all, but they mm -hmm. do such a good job of conveying and like putting in like dread into the film and. If that makes sense, like, uh, yeah, and it, it puts it, it they may be a little over the top and they're not very realistic, but, um, you really feel it. And I think you get that from Guillermo del Toro. And then also I think Stephen King has that like good versus evil and uh, yeah, uh, I yeah. definitely think in, that. In very clear cut ways, you know, most, most stories are like good versus evil, but this is like a very, oh, right. Like yeah. there's, there's the big bad wolf and there's mother goose and that's yes. like who they yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because this was a big, I was so excited to talk to you about this as a first time viewer of the movie because I think the movie is great, but watching it, trying to decide where I'm going to vote it, is, and we've talked about this a lot with old movies, it just, the older it gets, the harder it is to recommend to people because people have less patience for movies that do not seem current and relevant. And to mm -hmm. me, Night of the Hunter isn't even current for its own time. Like it's either hearkening back to like a, a simplistic way of storytelling with fairy tales, or it's kind of ahead of its time with its, hmm. um, you know, critiques of religious hypocrisy and 
repressed sexuality and things like that. But so what I wanted to ask you is straight up about like those kind of like awkward parts of the movie, like the the supporting cast performances, or or the like what you were saying, how they do so much with so little that the sets are sparse. Is that do you find that to be a selling point, or is that something that takes you out of the movie? Okay, so what I would say is the thing that takes me out of the movie the most is probably uh, the young boy that um, is is in here. I don't think that he's interesting a, necessarily a super great actor, uh, and I I don't want to dump on him or anything. I think I think the thing that pulls me into the film though is the imagery. Like it wasn't until the second watch that like you know you're like oh this set is very sparse <laughs> you know there, yeah. there isn't much going on. At the first time you watch it, you're drawn into it because of the, these images uh, that they're showing and the fantastical value to those images, especially, you know, in the second half of the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where it really starts to shine. Yeah. Um, as far as the supporting performances, you know, like, I, I think as I was thinking about this movie and how to talk about it, uh, I think one of the things that came to mind was, like, it's like an Andy Griffith nightmare. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Um, that you know, like it, I, I'm going to write that on a piece of tape and stamp it across <laughs> my Criterion copy of the movie. Like that's the tagline. Yeah, <laughs> Andy Griffith Nightmare. The Night I mean, of because the yeah, the, the, the supporting cast is they they all do a good job, but they it, it reminded me of the small town. Like uh uh, like if Opie was to run away, you know, like that's kind of how it reminded <laughs> me. Uh, and kind of the same level of acting and stuff. But I think like we talked about the images. And the story and Robert Mitchum and Lillian Gish's performances are so great that it elevates this movie to something other than an episode of Andy Griffith, <laughs> you know, like a right, <laughs> you know, like a nightmarish Andy Griffith oh, episode. If only Harry Powell could have been a guest star as he was rolling away across the countryside. <laughs> yes, that would have been so awesome if he stopped by. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's that's something that I I was kind of butting up against, especially the supporting cast. It's interesting you would call out um, Billy Chapin as John Harper. Because I'm with you. I don't think he's a great child actor, but I think he he's doing better than the girl who plays Pearl. I think Sally Jane Bruce, I think is her name. Um, she's she's one that it's like, oh, you can't bag on. She's she's just a little kid in a movie set. But my goodness, it's they're not great performances. But to me, I found in trying to to break apart the movie and figuring out where I was going to vote it. The simplicity of it is actually the movie's biggest charm for me, that it's commitment to this sort of fairy tale structure is honestly what <laughs> makes the movie watchable to me, that it's not trying to take itself too seriously, that it's not Charles Lawton being like, I'm a serious actor and I'm going to make a serious movie and show what a great director I can be that he, he very much commits to like, I want it to be a nightmarish mother goose story. I want Robert Mitchum to be the big bad wolf and oversell things. And I want to show my influence because to me, part of what also I think makes the movie difficult to sell to like more recent generations of moviegoers is that Lawton overtly was trying to stage a kind of revival of the movies that he watched when he was a kid or when movies were starting out that he wanted to bring D.W. Griffith back to the screen and D.W. Griffith is a tough guy to talk about in the yeah. past like 25 years of film criticism um, so, you know, this movie that is trying to 
make movies great again. <laughs> that's kind of an unfortunate, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's kind of why he hires Lillian Gish. And I love the line that surrounds the legend of how he hired her when she says, why do you, I haven't worked in years. Why do you want me for this movie? And he said, when I first went to the movies, people sat up straight and they were enthralled. And now they lean back in their chairs and they munch their popcorn. I want them to sit up straight again. That's such a great line. Mm-hmm. But the movie, it seems very purposefully goes out of its way sometimes to not hide the fact that it's a movie. That with over-the-top performances, with kind of awkward editing and choppy cuts and things like that, and, and kind of overly extravagant compositions, it never seems like it wants you to get lost in the illusion that you're watching reality. That it constantly wants you to be aware that you're watching a movie. Yeah. I think that's a selling point as a film fan, but I think it's a hard sell for people who kind of want to escape more. What's what's your take on all this? Yeah, one of the other things as I was watching it um that I thought about was it's an animated film. <laughs> uh mm. especially especially in the second half or like that would be how you would sell it to somebody. Sure. You know like uh th- because it's animated films obviously they there's nothing real about them, but you still get drawn away with the story, right? Sure. Uh, at least a good one. So it's it's kind of in the same vein as that. You know like uh it's animated. It's not supposed to be real. There's over the top images or uh yeah, over the top images and things that uh aren't realistic at all, <laughs> you know? Sure. But because if you sell it as animated, then their expectations would be uh much lower. Right. Uh you know, or like they're not expecting some realistic serial killer movie. And and I think it delivers like even on like a macabre promise. Like I that um that image of Willa at the bottom of the river mm-hmm. with her hair like that's that's one of the most creepy creepily beautiful things I think like any movie has ever captured and it's a, it's a movie that has its moments of horror in fact as much of the movie defies being able to fit into like one specific genre I think it's mostly aligned with a horror movie and I think there's a lot of sections of it that actually play pretty terrifyingly especially since the movie about kids in peril and this guy coming after him and i think a, a lot of it is it gets there with that imagery and you talked a lot about like the movies it doesn't just owe things to dw griffith that it seems to take a lot from german expressionist movies well, let's talk about some of this imagery because this is a point i 100 percent get behind that there's images this movie has that i think are all timers i think they're fantastic i think it's an easy way to recommend the movie to people i've kind of already called out willa at the bottom of the river as a favorite shot, but what other what other images have stuck with you that make this uh, a must-see? So there's two that I can think of right off the top, and one I came to on my own, and uh, that is the the chase sequence, and that's where, uh, if you want to call it a chase sequence, because the preacher is going at a very leisurely pace, uh, singing, leaning, uh, and it's shot uh, from the perspective of the the kid, and you see uh, the preacher way off in the distance and he's riding and he's just silhouetted and the, s- the sun is either rising or setting, uh, but it's just this beautiful image with this terrifying song. You, you Like, it's letting everybody know that he's coming. And, it, like, mm-hmm. I mean, the song isn't inherently terrifying. It's the, the character that makes it terrifying. But yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and then the line uh, right after and is like, doesn't he ever sleep? <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then the second one, I, I, I didn't come to on my own. Um, I told one of my friends that I had watched Night of the Hunter and they sent me a GIF. And it is of Robert Mitchum chasing the children up the stairs yeah, from yeah. the basement. Those um, Frankenstein arms. Yeah. And th- that's really haunting. Like, that's something I, I haven't stopped thinking about. H- how about you? What are some images that uh, you really like? Man, I, th- I think the entire um, nighttime journey down the river after mm-hmm. they've escaped, it, that is all really striking. And that's part of something that comes, like, really out of a fairy tale because it's like these domineering images of the natural world in the foreground so you know it's the kids escaping from the spider's web that takes up more than half the screen and it's the giant owl it's the rabbits on the shore and and that's coupled also with that um the the dubbed lullaby that the little girl sings that's really obviously uh an adult voice but i think after (laughs) you kind of get a chuckle out of that the haunting like sound of that song actually fits really well and so i think that's a really easy move to forgive um there's I mean, there's honestly a lot, even some of like the less assuming ones I, I think are great, like even just him with his knuckles up showing the love and hate has, has become an iconic image him in, in almost a Looney Tunes way when he's first in his cell with um, <laughs> Papa Harper, where he just like sticks his head from the top bunk and he's upside down trying to get him to say in his sleep where the money is hit is really good. Oh, that's... Um, go, go ahead. Sorry, this is kind of venturing off from the images but one of the things that i really actually keep going with the images i apologize i i I just remembered one more i'm I'm ashamed i didn't think of this first oh the um the the duet the leaning duet with lillian gish in silhouette in the foreground and robert mitchum way in the background leaning on the fence post i mean the the thing is is like if i'm going to talk a lot about this movie showing its nuts and bolts a lot and and being kind of awkward and not what we're used to when this movie delivers a moment like i said it's an all-timer and how oh, yeah. how many movies have a moment as fantastic as that duet? It's amazing. I, and then at the end of it, where the girl comes in with the the candle and like a yeah. obscures the your vision of Robert Mitchum, mm-hmm. and then he just disappears. It's yep. such a great <laughs> it's, moment. It's fantastic. Yeah, the death sequence too. The the widow's death sequence is also one of the yeah I, I, like a great sequence. God, that yeah, all that dark space kind of I I don't know I I've tr- it's one of those things like I've tried to analyze and then it's kind of one of those images that seems to defy like putting it into words because I want to talk about like the isolation and if the movie is this analysis of religion and the presence of God like all that dark space around like there's nothing there looking over them it's just them in this a frame but then there's it's like I don't even know if that's what it's meant to be it's just this very striking image. Mm-hmm. No, like through through and through, I think it's fantastic. And even the way like the town is set up, like you said, it's it's a it's a fairy tale. It's kind of told from the kids' point of view, so a lot of it doesn't make sense. I've never noticed this in the movie itself, but I know in the in the supplements on Criterion's Blu-ray, they make a big point of like there's a there's a fence in that town that's just a fence. There's no house, <laughs> but beyond it, it's just there because that kind of like contributes to this mood of like. Small town, you know, Snow Snow White's happy days before everything went south for her. That's what this place is to these kids. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we could, uh, I think as we keep going in the conversation, we'll just like interrupt each other with like, oh yeah, and remember this image. So like, we'll <laughs> we'll kind of like sideline that to talk about some other stuff. But if you think of anything else that was visually striking, I know there's just tons of stuff we're forgetting because it's a very carefully compositive movie. Even like the, um, I just thought of one, the uh, the shadow of 
Harry Powell when he first appears in the kid's bedroom. That makes oh yeah. That makes no sense, you know, because nope. the, the reverse <laughs> shot is he's he's a floor below them under a lamp. Like that shadow shouldn't be there. But again, that's to me that's the selling point of this movie that it's not about like playing by the rules of your world. That's a that it's a fantasy world and it's trying to let this morality play play out. And I find that really charming and and important. I keep kind of going back to that line. I think it's been ascribed to Einstein where somebody was asking him, like, I want my daughter to be a scientist, a great scientist like you. Like, how do how do I help her be intelligent? And he just said, if you want your kids to be smart, read them fairy tales. If you want them to be even smarter, read them more fairy tales. <laughs> and kind of like, that's Night of the Hunter. Its charm is not that it tries too hard. It's that it's okay with that sh- appearance of that shadow not making sense. It's about the import of that dark figure crashing into those kids lives as they're telling themselves a bedtime story yeah absolutely it's 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 great how what's what's your take on that i know that this i know that this is my point of this being like one of the best fairy tales that movies have made but is is it a selling point to you do you think it's maybe too simplistic at times like what was your reaction to this no i i don't think that it's too simplistic i i I think you're right I, i i think it goes along with and maybe this is has more to do with how we get our fairy tales now, you know, like our fairy tales are often, I think, more relegated to animation. You mm-hmm. know, we yeah. s- spoke about Guillermo del Toro earlier, but I think he's one of the ones that does fairy tales really well. Mm-hmm. Like I, earlier this year, I watched Pan's Labyrinth, uh, and you know, that's obviously a great fairy tale. <laughs> Most of the way we get our, our fairy tales are animated, and and those are very simple. You know, like especially you know growing up like the in the nineties, like I did. Uh, you got a bunch of those animated fairy tales. Those are simple, but they, um, I, I don't necessarily hold it against them. I, I think seeing this as a child would have scarred me for, for a long time, <laughs> uh, it, in its simplicity. So s- simplicity doesn't necessarily mean bad. It's, it's just, it's a fairy tale I, and it, it is simple, but the, for, for me, the images and the, uh, performances you know like elevate it from just being simple or make it more than just a simple fairy tale story Mm -hmm. do you do you think this is a movie that could play for for kids who are about the age of the protagonist like in that 10 to 12 range i am going to speak as someone that doesn't have kids so like as as will i yeah that'll be this week's question yeah i would um maybe i guess it depends (laughs) on the kid uh, because I do think that there, it's simple and there's not a lot of stuff happens off screen, but there's still stuff that I think you would have to explain to the kids um, that would, you know, one of the things my dad always did was like, if we watched a movie that I didn't understand, he was always like, let's talk about it afterwards. And I think that you could show a kid almost anything. And I say almost anything, <laughs> as long as you, you guys have a conversation about it afterwards. At least that's uh-huh. my theory on uh-huh. child rearing. And, and watching movies like if you have a conversation about it afterwards and you explain and talk about these things um i think that that makes it okay <laughs> okay i'm i'm on the fence if i think it would play but there's a big part of me that would love to try it because i think that the movie one by having protagonists that age but i think it also kind of hits a lot of the beats like i think it's even a pretty funny movie a lot of yes, the time like it very much so it, it you know, Mitchum is a is a chilling some bitch. Like he's he's really <laughs> one of the best villains ever. But he he balances like that sin that sinister nature with a lot of like really funny goofy stuff. Like I said, like really almost like a cartoon version of the Big Bad Wolf. Mm-hmm. And it brings me like no end of glee 
like those times when he's trying to get Pearl. Where's the money hidden? John said, and he just like instantly loses his cool. He's like, never mind what John's <laughs> like. It's so funny to me that he um like he can't beat this little kid. And I think that that's I think that's something the commentary pointed out is it's it's really funny to watch the movie through the lens of like kids are the only people who could be like legitimately terrified by this guy. <laughs> like he, the uh, mm-hmm. the interaction he has with Peter Graves in the jail cell kind of shows like this guy can't really pull one over adults' eyes. <laughs> like he's kind of pathetic. Yeah. And that's an interesting uh, point, too, because it is funny. And I wonder if that adds to its cartoonishness, for sure. Uh, And but I wonder if that kind of lessens the blow if kids watch it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I I think it's satisfying for adults, too, because like like the shot you talked about where he's chasing the kids up the stairs and then he gets his fingers jammed in the door and like his his cartoonish like, yo, is really (laughs) funny. He, you know, I don't. How was what was your reaction to the very end when he gets winged by the shotgun and runs away yipping? Yeah, that that's an interesting choice. And I, I also listened to the commentary and they were kind of split on that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh I don't know. I, I think it's two different kinds of movies, right? Uh the one where like Robert Mitchum is always terrifying and you never see like the rug pulled out from underneath him. You know, like, that's a completely different movie than what we got. Like, in this one, he's very much more cartoonish. And so there's a, a levity that happens. And so it's not so oppressing. Uh, he's not as oppressing as, like, you know, this menacing figure that never relents on that menace, you know? Mm-hmm. And and to me, that's, like, what makes the performance. Is I like that yeah. he's not just always scary. That there there is time to say, like, this is not someone to be afraid of this is a pathetic figure <laughs> like to, yeah. to me and, and that's part of like the fairy tale thing you know like the big bad wolf is not really all that like it, it's kind right. of like whatever power you give to him which which feeds into the whole movie's themes on on religion and um hysteria i, I guess it would be um and i'm kind of like cycling back to what i said just a few minutes ago like oh this guy can't pull one over on adults that's not necessarily true because the the movie actually very chillingly shows how easily he does subjugate adults and that kids are actually the only ones he can't get get his grasp on because that's um that speech he gives to Shelley Winter on their wedding night where he makes her look in the mirror and he's starting to brainwash her with you know the the feminine ideal and this body has been profaned by man since Adam that is a terrifying monologue yes. and and that mm-hmm. scene where he has he's got her under his spell and they're having the like the the revival meeting or whatever and it's just her talking about the error of her old ways and those torches are blazing in the forefront and he's just cool and collect in the back like that is as good a cinematic representation of satan as i've seen anywhere yeah that is the most terrifying thing the way he brainwashes the wife and especially from uh from a child's perspective you know like uh, he never fools the boy. Um, mm. the, he sees through him the whole time. And then for the, you know, if you're watching it from his perspective, which we do like him losing his mother in that way, or watching his mother slip away into this becoming this new person is probably the most terrifying thing that happens in this, Yeah, you know? Um, Absolutely. So. It's, it's really scary stuff. And that, and that's where like the meat of, you know, we talked about the movie as, being simplistic and that's being where a lot of his charm is but i think where its legacy has come from is like it's not just a fairy tale look at like all this meaty stuff that is right under the surface so we've got this whole section about 
this guy who can come and deliver a good sermon and now this entire town is under his, his spell even though he's like as close a representation of the devil as you could possibly get yeah. um and, and also that that ideal of of uh sexual repression with him you know with um that shot of him in the burlesque house which starts to me with a laugh that you know the the cut from the woman dancing to like hard cut to his face just like <laughs> sourpussed and and upset is super funny and it becomes immediately unsettling with that you know moving to the hate on his fist and popping the the knife through his jacket pocket in a very obvious symbolic gesture of his sexual repression and how violence is mixed with repressed sexuality all that all that stuff exists in this movie that's like it's like if the big bad wolf was a guy yeah which Essentially, that's where those fairy tales come from, right? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, 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 exactly. Like that's, I think that's where that Einstein quote was getting at. Is like they're not really that simple when you think about it. There's yeah. some very troubling realities that these these tales get at, and and that's another thing too to, to talk about. It is is that I think the movie is really often overlooked as being appropriate to the time in which it's set. That it's set in the depression and the kind of like religious fervor that people are caught up in is kind of a product of a lack of options. You know, that, that Shelley Winter's whole dilemma is people tell her like, well, you need someone to help you raise those youngins. Like you, you need a man. And so this, this deal she makes with the devil is supposed to be for her kid's benefit, but she doesn't think things through. She's kind of just looking for an easy answer and an institutionalized answer. Mm-hmm. But I, but I also like, so, so my point is like, oh, it's great. It critiques religious hypocrisy, like the, you know, how, how easy Harry Powell gets everybody under his thumb using the Bible is very scary and, and kind of true to life. But I also said, I think it's a sincere religious allegory. And that really comes through in the part of Lillian Gish, that, that her whole thing represents like the best of what religion offers the world and what, and what faith offers the world in, in trying times. And if you can do it like this, this is when it's good. And I don't think that the movie is cheating in that regard. I think she earns that even with like the the 25 minutes she's in the movie, which is kind of embarrassing as good as she is. But mm -hmm. you you said you you liked her, didn't you? Yes. What's what's your take on Lillian Gish? Uh, well, you said it earlier in the episode, but certainly Mother Goose, you know, like um, in, there's several shots. You know, we talked about shots earlier, but where all the children are just like following her and she's got her little basket. She certainly looks like Mother Goose. You know, that's certainly the image that we're going for. It's interesting because when we first see her, she's threatening the kids. Yes. Uh, and like, I think when I first watched it, I was like, uh oh, you know, like, what's this? <laughs> um, but then it's it changes and she's like she's so caring and so loving and willing to do whatever it is for these kids and not ask anything in return necessarily. I, I love that sequence. I love once they've finally gotten done with that river journey, which is a terrifying journey to make, but they finally kind of feel safe, you know, and if like there's the the moment where they, they're washing the kids mm -hmm. and uh, like the, the boy runs around like he's trying to get away. And I, I, those are really like kind and nice moments. And, you know, very quickly, like the Lillian Gish's character is kind and caring, you know, like and is willing mm -hmm. to do whatever it takes. Um, it, it, the exact opposite of Robert Mitchum, you know? Yeah. Who, 
who comes in and he's charming and he's got away with words, but he's just a snake in the grass. Yeah, that's I, I love the way the movie just pits them against each other, because like you said, it's so great that the first thing you see her do is she's whipping them with a switch. Yeah, and it's like, oh, but she's really good, like where it counts. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and I mean, oh, nothing, nothing makes me happier than Lillian Gish just like toting a shotgun around the house, oh, <laughs> reciting yeah, like, I'm going to tell you about baby Jesus. Yeah. When she gets that shotgun, like, you know that you don't want to be on the other side of that. Like, like, and and she's old. She's an older lady. Like, she's not imposing, but she gets that shotgun and like, she is going to stand up for whatever it needs or whatever she needs to, to protect these children. Like, and the only way you're going to get to them is like, if she's dead first and, and that's going to be a tough thing to do. And that's. That's kind of what I like about Lillian Gish in this movie. And that's hard to do, like you said, with 25 minutes. Like, she doesn't show up. I mean, she shows up at the very beginning, but we don't know much about her. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's a hard thing to do with just 25 minutes. Like, within the first five minutes or ten minutes of knowing her, you know that you don't want to be on the other side of her. And, and that kind of actually also brings me to <laughs> the uh, the other little girl. Or she's not really a little girl. She's, like, basically... I, on the other side of puberty, you know, like, uh, and oh. she falls in love. Oh, good. Yeah, Ruby. Yeah, Ruby. Yeah, and she's on. She falls in love with Robert Mitchum, and I think that this is an interesting thing to compare to uh, the, the fairy tales. Like, and once you stop becoming a child, you you become an adult, and then there's something about being able to fall to the whim of Robert Mitchum's character, you know, the preacher. Because maybe there's something about being an adult that you can you can be charmed by him, whereas like children and of course Lillian Gish are almost mm-hmm. immune to that charm, and yeah. it, that's an interesting comment I think yeah. around that. Again, that whole religious allegory and morality play about like the the loss of innocence and and being tricked. And, yeah. And the other thing I like is I've heard the, the movie is read as like you know Mitchum represents like an Old Testament wrath kind of thing, and and Lillian Gish is is New Testament. That scene she has with Ruby, where she's crying and says what she did, and and Rachel says like you were look you were just looking for love the only foolish way you knew how in in, in kind of a chastising way, but like in a loving way that she's not mm-hmm. upset. You know she'll deal with consequences she's got the shotgun at the ready but that that moment brings a tear to my eye it's mm-hmm. so so dang good yeah the, the forgiveness that she shows there you know like uh she knows that she made a mistake but she's willing to forgive her and and that's probably the most powerful thing to come from the bible you know is, is yeah. i think forgiveness you know yeah and that's that's the other thing and this is kind of like my whole point about it being a sincere religious allegory but to me this is also like of movies related to the bible like this is my favorite one. Like I'll, I, I like this more than like Ten Commandments and Cecil B. DeMille epics and things like that because it does seem to be at the heart of like the ideologies of what works and what doesn't there. Um, and and it's still a very sincere way, you know. Like a lot of the movie, it's especially towards the end, is Lillian Gish straight up looking at the camera and talking about these like maxims that would be delivered in Sunday school about it's mm-hmm. a hard world for little things and bless the children they endure. But it it never seems preachy. And and maybe that's because the movie has also dabbled in the, the evil side of things. But I find that it it works and it's satisfying. And maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's because I was stuck in Sunday school a lot as a kid. And so I know these things. And so it's kind of cool to see a movie be like, oh, he's like this homicidal figure and he rides a pale horse. That's kind of cool. And oh, the, <laughs> yeah. kids, the kids are in a boat and they're found among the reeds. That's kind of neat. Yeah, uh, for sure. 
I, I also uh, had a lot of church going in my youth. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I honestly like it when that stuff shows up. A long time ago when we covered um, Mother in like our 10th episode or something, we were talking about, you know, the regardless of, you know, your relationship to a, a religious upbringing or religion in general, like these, these sorts of stories do have a, a hold in Western civilization. And it is interesting to see them pop up in other art forms to assess their worth in a Night of the Hunter. Like I said, they they are both used to point out like, hey, there's kind of a problem with a religious institution that doesn't see any problem with violence. You know, like Gary Powell says, like, your book is full of killings. You don't mind that. But but at the same time is so like the unforgivable thing is to have a sense of sexuality like this. This movie does that. And it also mm-hmm. has a very clear stance of, of good and evil and, you know, faith and disbelief and hypocrisy. And I, I find the way it just melds them all together. Very watchable, simplistic in its presentation, but satisfying to to watch and to both think about. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> Before we move off of uh, the. Ruby, I, I do want to point out, I think one of the funniest moments, and I I don't know if it's my twisted sense of humor, but it's as the mob is about to, you know, like lynch Robert Mitchum, <laughs> yeah. Ruby's like, oh, he's right there in the prison. Maybe can I go see him? So she's like, she's still in love with him. Yep. The only way she knows uh, how. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, We've woven Mitchum throughout our conversation, but he, you know, we've talked to Lillian Gish. Mitchum is another part of the point I think the movie's worth seeing. I, to me, he's like, if I had one reason to say why well, this movie's worth seeing, it's Robert Mitchum. What have we not said about his performance that you still would like to? Uh, he's charming. Uh, he, he's very charming in this. Uh, one of my favorite moments is uh, the, like, the opening speech he gives in the ice cream parlor, or at least I think it was an ice cream parlor, but um, where he does his whole, now on this hand, we got love. Yeah. And on this hand, we got hate. And, you know, like he does that whole speech. And you know it's smarmy, like uh, religious, like con man speech yeah. that means nothing. But the, but the way he delivers it is like, oh, this is a God-fearing man. You can see why these uh, uh, Mayberry people <laughs> yeah. would fall for it, you know? Yeah, he's he's kind of like the cool preacher you know he, he found a way to make this interesting yeah for sure i, I yeah i i think he's really good I, he does a really great job and in the commentary they talked about robert mitchum being uh a little uneasy about talking to god at the very beginning because it's you know like him monologuing <laughs> talking to god oh but i love it's, it it's yeah i love it it's really good um it's maybe a little funny and a little odd but i think it it works and i think you really need that to set up the character but um uh it it works. Robert Mitchum sells it like a uh, a character that's or an actor that's not as good as him wouldn't be able to sell no, it that well. No, I can't. Yeah. I can't see Gary Cooper pulling this off like they originally wanted to. Yeah. Um. Character analysis question about Harry Powell. Do you think he believes the 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 lie he tells? Do you think he sincerely believes that God talks to him that this is his mission, or do you think he is aware it is a an act he puts on to act on his own impulses? Uh, I think he believes. I think he believes that, you know, he's doing the Lord's work, you know, like the women are evil and, you know, like, yeah, I I, I, I truly think he believes. Yeah, I, I do, too. I, I like that there is enough nuance in the performance that there is room to believe that he is aware of what he does and he's a master manipulator. But I, I think like he I think he's aware of that. But I think he also sincerely believes in this homicidal mission that he's on to to cleanse the world of what he sees as evil in the pursuit of money. <laughs> yeah. Which which makes him 
scary. Like that's that's the real scary thing is that this all is played cartoonishly at points. It's over. It's kind of hyperbolically terrifying at others, but it never seems outside of the realm of possibility from an ideological standpoint. Right. He's he's great. Um, what I was going to say in general impressions, and I stopped myself later later this week on Friday. You'll get to hear me. I guess I guessed it on our brother podcast, A Thousand One by One. Uh, talking about Bad Day at Black Rock, which I'd never seen before, and I loved it. And that's the same year. That's 1955. And we talked for a little bit about Spencer Tracy in that movie. He was nominated for an Oscar for leading actor. He lost it to Ernest Borgnine for Marty. And Marty's still a movie I have not seen, so I can't, like, bag on Marty. But watching Night of the Hunter, I was like, I know this movie was kind of canned. Its own studio didn't believe in it, didn't publicize it. So it's its chance at an Oscar campaign was pretty much like squashed from the beginning but i'm like how in the world did robert mitchum not get at least an an acting nomination for this role because it's clearly like one of the best performances of the decade yeah he's really good in this (laughs) one of the things i need to correct is uh movies that robert mitchum is in uh i think i've only seen out of the past uh which i recently watched after yeah the night of the hunter and then um, this one. And so I need to go like on a Robert Mitchum binge because both of those movies are really great and he's uh, fantastic in both of them. Yeah, he's he's always great. I'm I'm kind of embarrassed because I know I've seen at least one or two more of his, but I can't remember the names of them. But between Night of the Hunter and Out of the Past, I mean, he's a friggin' legend. I think Martin Scorsese's gone on record as saying Robert Mitchum is film noir. So <laughs> yeah. you can't have a higher recommendation than that. Yeah. Um, also to just cover my bases on that Oscar talk, it's also a crime that Lillian Gish doesn't have an acting nomination for this movie. Everybody else, I'm fine with it. They're over the top. They're in, <laughs> they're in the right movie. Like it, it's all part of a piece, but those two, oh, they are some of the best performances. Right. And I mean, it, it goes back. They, you're, you're talking about the other actors. They, it's of a piece and they are, they fit in, but Lillian Gish and Robert Mitchum take those roles and elevate them. Uh, it, whereas like the other actors in this just kind of do their part, and and that's <laughs> not to bag on them. Yeah, yeah. They, they are serviceable as like the easily manipulated, like town busybody or the, the yeah. innocent young girl. Yeah, they they get the job done. Um, Chris, we're we're starting to come up on time here. Are there any of your points you feel you have not been sufficiently able to to make or back up? No, I, I think we've covered everything pretty well. Um, I think we could go on for like another 15, 30 minutes talking about it, but I think we've covered everything. Uh, I always like, love coming on uh, the podcast or doing a podcast about a film because oftentimes the act of just talking about the film will like elevate the film in my, in my mind. You know, like it makes it so much better. Um, so I look forward to my next watching of the night of the hunter because I, I'm going to like it even more. And I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it is one that I think gets better and better every time that you watch it, that there is always something new to appreciate it. I think it's earned its status as a classic. It's, it's really something special. So, so we'll, we'll end the discussion there, but we don't have to completely cut off talking about it because we still have double features to recommend so these are movies we have chosen that share some kind of connective tissue that if we were going to have a movie night what movie would we pair up with the night of the hunter so i'm really curious chris if you're going to put a movie in a double feature with night of the hunter which one would you pick yeah so i went with one that has like one kind of common element but in a pairing up it it, there's kind of a contrast to it you know i i went with african queen and yeah. the, 
Yeah, which is a great movie. But the thing that ties it up is like they're both going down rivers. <laughs> <laughs> that That's the main thing. Uh, but African Queen is really great. I think it, it would pair well because it's got a different tone afterwards, or like depending on where you put it. But they just had that connective tissue of the river and you've got the like contrasting tones of the film. And I think that those uh, would really go well, uh, especially like African Queen. We talked about the Night of the Hunter being like an animated film. The African Queen's very realistic, or at least uh, in the way it's shot, you know, there's sure. is, is very realistic. So you're going to get that contrast. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that, and, that would pair well, really well. And Catherine Hepburn is a woman on a mission there to save the soul of Humphrey Bogart. So there's a, there's a very oh, yeah. sweet little arc Oh there. yeah, there is. And, I forgot about that. And if I'm not mistaken, I think these are both written by James Agee, kind of like the two movies he is known for writing. Wow, I did a really good job in picking. Freaking that. on it, man. I love it. That yeah. actually, And that sounds fun, too. That um, Like we said, Night of the Hunter is not an overly depressing movie. It is very uplifting. It is very funny. But African Queen is is just a, a ton of fun. There's there's very few lines that I love as much as I now pronounce you man and wife proceed with the execution. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good one. Cool. Um, I'm going down downer lane for my <laughs> double feature recommendation. <laughs> um, initially, I was uh, I was still really high on Mitchum, and I wanted to do Cape Fear because I'd never seen the original Cape Fear, and I was like, I want some more of Robert Mitchum being a conniving sob. I actually, I'm going to put Night of the Hunter in a double feature with the movie we are actually talking about next week. This is the first. It's um, Fritz Lang's M from 1931. And um, kind of the reason I changed my mind is um, what we've been talking about, about Night of the Hunter's assimilation of the, the film movements that inspired it. So, you know, things like German Expressionism and silent movies of D.W. Griffith. And um, I, we've actually already recorded this episode on M. So I know like how that conversation went and, and a big point I talk about in M is that it seems to have like influenced like everybody, like everybody seems to have taken something from M and you had kind of talked about how Night of the Hunter might have taken some things from M. And I think also M is a movie that acts beautifully as this bridge between silent movies and sound movies, the same way Night of the Hunter mm-hmm. was tr- kind kind of trying to bridge the cinema of its time with the the very early days and you know kids are still in peril it's it's uh it's riveting you still get like the the hysteria all the fervor that happens when this one bad egg moves into a community so a a bit of a downer (laughs) double feature for me but uh i I think that these two actually make a very fine pairing what order do you watch them in i think i'd go with m first yeah just so just so that you can get some laughs out of Night of the Hunter and you can have like a, a sense of hope at the end of it. Cause the, you know, M's, M's a great movie, but the way that movie ends, that's not the taste I want left in my mouth yeah. after watching yeah. two movies in a row. So yeah, definitely M first, then Night of the Hunter. Good choice. So um, those those are the ones we picked. So I like yours, Chris, African Queen, a lot of good stuff that we found there. M is a good movie. We'll see if people would go for that double feature. But my favorite part of the week is on Thursday. Uh, be checking us out on social media because we're going to ask all of you listening what movie you would put in a double feature with Night of the Hunter. I always get great ideas from our watch list, and it's really fun to see the obvious things that I missed or the rewarding mm-hmm. things that I missed. And then we'll kind of just roll out from there. That'll happen on Thursday and on Friday. Now that Chris and I have had our say, you guys are the ones who are going to to decide if the Night of the Hunter makes Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. So again, if you're not following Cinemust on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, that is where we're going to drop those polls on Friday. So make sure you're following us so you can cast your vote. That'll help decide if this movie is going to make the list of essential cinema or if it's just going to be uh, cast by the wayside. 
I honestly, I think I know where this one will go, but I could see it going the opposite direction pretty easily. <laughs> so this will be very interesting to see how the votes go. Chris, that wraps it up for us, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and for being excited about coming on. It's, it's always our pleasure, man, to talk movies with you. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I love coming on. Um, I'm going to start my watch for the next time I'm going to come on, counting the days. All right. I'm, I'm hoping to have you back real, real soon. Do you have, do you have any um, teasers for what you're thinking about maybe bringing to the show next time? No, I can't wait to be surprised, though. Okay, cool. Me neither. Um, and, and one last time, man. So it'll be a little while for you to have back on here, but I think you're great to listen to. You know your stuff. People can get that every week on the Casual Cinecast. So one more time, where can people find you guys? Casual Cinecast uh, at, at, on any like podcast app, um, also Facebook, Twitter. Uh, go check those out. We put out polls because we actually um, each pick a film from the Criterion Collection and we put it out to you guys to vote. So check out the Twitter and you can help pick our next Criterion film. Please do. We need to stop Justin from winning all the polls all the time. Yeah, what we've discovered is like if you pick, like there are certain movies that will automatically get chosen. And so you, you kind of got to rig the the voting. Yep. He's, very, <laughs> he's very good at that. So excellent. Man, I am, I'm really excited to hear your guys' episode on Do the Right Thing later this week. Good luck uh, talking through that one. Thank you very much. No problem. And again, thank you all for listening to us. I'm looking forward to getting your votes on Friday, your double features on Thursday. And um, I've, I've already announced it next week. Uh, won't somebody please think of the children? We still have kids in peril on the show. David Sandu's coming back to discuss Fritz Lang's horror crime classic M. It's a fantastic show, so we look forward to delivering it next Tuesday. Um, until then, Chris, if there's nothing else to say, uh, how's about one more time I tell you the story of right hand, left hand? Go ahead. Go ahead.